0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We have had many memorable guests on this show these past 20 years. On occasion, we've spoken to figures of national importance. Some are destined for the history books, like newsman Walter Cronkite and General Chuck Yeager. We feel blessed to have held such conversations. I must confess, however, that our guest today is someone with whom I was impressed with as a 7th grader and whose work over the years has retained that admiration, which is a bit unique. He is star number 2683 on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and that star was earned for the role that made him world famous. The show he co-starred in as a 19-year-old novice actor remains respected today as one of the greatest comedy programs ever. That show was Batman, a monster hit of the 1960s for its creative blend of action, artistic innovation, and most importantly, tongue-in-cheek hilarity. Our guest today is Burt Ward, best known in the world as Robin, the junior half of Gotham City's crime-fighting duo. Unlike many Hollywood tales of stunning success at a young age, Burt Ward's story has no unhappy ending. He remains today an active figure doing solid charitable work in the field of animal welfare. Make no mistake, Mr. Burt Ward is a guy we've especially looked forward to chatting with. Thanks to a little help from his publicist, Roger Neal, I'm especially pleased that I can't say at this point, welcome to Radio Parallax, Burt Ward. Hello, citizens! (laughs) Burt, there was nothing quite like Batman before it burst on the scene. I would like to note that when the box set of 120 episodes came out on the market, I grabbed one, and I can happily report to our listeners that the comedy holds up. I laugh out loud again and again, And I'm pretty sure I'm not the first interviewer that can tell you that.
1: No, no. You know, we tickled a funny bone in just about everybody that watched our show except for children who took it at face value and as hero worship. Who wouldn't want to be riding in the Batmobile with Batman, climbing walls, fighting heinous villains, saving people? I mean, it was like the fantasy of every kid.
0: Absolutely. My understanding is that when DC Comics sold the rights for Batman to ABC, the plan was to make an action series like The Adventures of Superman, but executive producer William Dozier read a number of the comic books and decided it really couldn't be played straight. Thus, they adopted this campy comedic angle and and, and and I guess led to a broad talent search for both a Batman and Robin who could be leading men of action and, and also amusing.
1: Well, but let me clarify a couple of things real quick. One, I was 20 years old, going on 21 when I got the part. I did have to go to court to have my contract approved in California <laughs> because uh, yeah, I wasn't 21. But I was turning 21 and uh, at the time that I, I got the role. That's number one. Number two... Actually, we did play our characters straight. The show was written comedically. So by taking something that's written funny and playing it straight, that's where you got that humor. That, I mean, just amazing kinds of humor. Things like we'd be chasing villains on the, you know out on the street of Gotham City. We're like running after them. And they run across the street. And as I start to run across the street, Batman stops, no Robin, we must use the crosswalk. So, so now you use the crosswalk, and, and, you, and now you're way behind them, right? Because they didn't use the crosswalk, but we had to use the crosswalk.
0: Well, I was terribly amused when I read that when Adam West was exposed to the concept of the series and he read a sample script, he was immediately hooked by the scene where Batman enters a nightclub in full costume and requests a booth near the wall noting, He shouldn't wish to attract attention.
1: Yes, no, that that is absolutely true. They actually were concerned about some people not getting the idea that it was humorous. So they particularly wrote that dialogue in for him to say that uh, I I shouldn't wish to attract attention. That, I think, was the exact line he had. And it was hilarious. And it appealed to all audiences children, hero worship, adults, the nostalgia of the comic book. But at the time, the hardest audience to get were teenagers and college kids, because they didn't want to be inside watching television. They wanted to be out cruising their local drive-in on Friday and Saturday nights and doing cool things and not staying home and watching television. So to capture that audience, we turned to the subtleties and secondary meanings and all kinds of implications and eye-opening things that often brought us censors coming to visit us at least once a month with some complaint that we shouldn't have done that or we shouldn't have said it that way or that we're implying things that shouldn't be implied, that kind of stuff. But we captured that audience. So then we had a really broad audience. And, And on opening night, just to give your listeners a concept, on opening night, we had a rating of what's called a 55 share. Now, what that meant at the time was that in all of North America, not just the United States, but Canada and Mexico, all of the televisions on at 7 p.m. on January 12, 1966, of all the televisions on, 55 percent were watching Batman. And all the other ones were watching other programming, local channels, NBC, CBS, they were watching other stuff. All that other stuff shared 45% and Batman had 55%.
0: That is amazing. And I do want to validate watching the show how many double entendres that I don't think I noticed the first time through.
1: (laughs) Well, we used to say that we put on our tights to put on the world, that uh, we were the superheroes that wore our underwear on the outside of our clothes.
0: I have to ask, I know Adam Westlater said he, he maybe fit the role because he could perform the lines without laughing. You must have busted up at times.
1: Yes, but it was not just the dialogue that did it. You have to understand, everything that Adam and I did was taking what was written, playing it on a straight level, but adding in a second level of insinuation, double entendre, by the way of making statements, to slide it to mean something else. Even though you say one thing, you're sort of meaning something else. And the two of us got along so well, we were like instantly friends. I met him at the screen test, and yeah. I was introduced to him, and I was told, I said, Gentleman's going to be reading with you, Birds, Adam West. I said, Hi, how are you? And I sat down next to him, and we started to run the lines together. You have to understand, when I screen tested, there was no talk about comic books or superheroes, I wasn't told what the project was. I was only given a single sheet of paper that had paragraphs on it. There was a name above each paragraph. So my paragraph said Dick. It didn't say Dick Grayson or Batman. It said Dick. And Adams, it said Bruce, Bruce Dick, Bruce Dick, that kind of thing. And of course, when we were playing our alter identities, there's no Batman talk in that. So there was nothing. In what I did that implicated that this was anything to do with superheroes. What I found kind of amazing at my screen test was after I'd done some athletic stuff, I was at the time of brown belt karate, which had only come to the United States six years earlier, so most people never even heard the word. I thought everything was over. I said, well, thank you very much. And I started to leave. They said, oh, no, no, we're not done with you yet. I said, oh, okay. They said, we want you to walk over on the other side of the sound stage. Let me tell you. Walking over to the other side of the soundstage is like walking four long city blocks.
0: Uh-huh. The
1: biggest things you've ever seen in your life, okay? it could hold a B-52 aircraft. I mean, it's just gigantic. And I said, well, okay. And they, they say, yeah, we have two wardrobe men over there. They're going to help you get dressed. <laughs> and I stopped for a second. I said, well, with all due respect, I don't need any help getting dressed. They said, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't understand. You just go over there. You'll see that dressing room with the light on. You go in, and they'll help you. I said, all right. So I went over to the other side. I walked into this dressing room. I mean, it took me like five or six minutes just to get there. And I, I get over there, and I go in the dressing room. You know, two guys there, and they have this look like a 10-foot-long couch, only no back. It's like a mattress. It's huge. thing. So I saw all of this stuff on this couch, and I said, am I going to put some of this on? They said, no, you're going to put all of it on. I said, what? And they helped me get dressed, and what I can honestly say without overstating was the most incredibly painful and uncomfortable thing I'd ever worn in my entire life. I agonized from the mask that that irritated my eyelashes, to the boots that were too tight, to the tights that pulled the hair on my legs, to the red vest of wool that poked through the green t-shirt and irritated my chest. I mean, everything itched or hurt or pinched, okay? Now, being a positive person, always try to be a positive person. And I all I could do was hobble, I'm telling you, a mess outfit. I hadn't gotten used to that, believe me. And so as I hobbled towards the door, I turned around, and I remember saying to these two guys, well, the good news here is that after another 15 or 20 minutes, I'll never have to wear this costume again. <laughs> Famous last words.
0: <laughs> interested uh, listeners can can actually, I, I believe, see your screen test footage on, on the web if they take the time. I took a look. Yes. And I want to say— What you've just described now explains for me the expression I see on your face in that screen test as you're wearing that costume.
1: It was something never to forget, I promise you. It's like the worst Halloween trick-or-treat suit in the world.
0: I guess neither of you can really see out through those masks. Yes, you can
1: see only directly in front of you. So when I step out of the trailer, there's a step down before you get to the concrete floor nearly missed the step and broke my neck. I mean, thank God I was holding onto the rail with one of my arm's hands. I mean, because uh, you can't see there's, you're, there's no peripheral vision and there's no vision up and down, It's only straight through the mask. And just imagine if you've ever had something that's like irritated, kept rubbing against your eyelashes, <laughs> drives you crazy.
0: You got the role and, you, and that training in martial arts certainly helped. You didn't have a whole lot of acting credits. I had none. I had none.
1: But what I did have is years of study, both professionally and then at UCLA. So it wasn't like I was just a person coming in off the street. Mm -hmm. I had studied an enormous amount. I had a class with one of the top professional teachers in in Hollywood that this is method acting, going to the zoo three times a week to try to emulate kangaroos. I mean, let me tell you, I did all of that stuff. I just had never tried out for anything, and I had never gotten anything. And Batman was the very first thing I tried out for.
0: And my understanding, Bert, is that your agent was told that, yes, he's got the role, and and somehow the memo didn't get to you for weeks.
1: Yeah, I waited after the screencast six weeks. In the second week, I started getting phone calls, you know, maybe once a week from the studio, things like, oh, what's your shoe size? Oh, okay, seven and a half. Well, what's your hat size? Hat size? Well, I don't wear a hat. Well, go get your head measured. (laughs) Well, where do do I go to get my head measured? You know, all these things... (laughs) So What happened was, at the end of six weeks, I had gotten a call from these agents who, by the way, at the time I met them, I had met them through a producer that I had helped sell a home that my father was representing. My father was one of the top real estate brokers in Beverly Hills, and I was a young salesman. I got my license right after I turned 18, and was actually the youngest person in California to have gotten a salesman's license, but I, I had helped sell this property to this producer, and I asked him if he'd send me to an agent, which he did, and the agent said to me, I can't get work for the actors I've got. I'd never take you but except for this producer calling me, so I have to take you, so don't expect to work for a year, and if you get a job, you might have one sentence." Well, well, okay, all right. At the end of the six weeks, uh, the agents called me in to sign contracts, and I said, great, now I'm going to be formally represented and have my own agent, you know what I mean? I'm uh-huh. going to have my own Hollywood agent. So when I sat down to sign the contracts and I looked at these contracts, they're an inch and a half thick, and it says 20th Century Fox Studios on there, immediately I said, well, what's this? And said, so, those are your contracts. And I they said, no, 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 I came in to sign my agency contract. Said, no, 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 you got the role. I said, I did? You mean the studio didn't tell you? I said no. And then two days later, I talked to the studio. You mean your agent didn't tell you? So four of the six weeks of rotting, waiting to find out, I had the role, but I didn't know
0: it. Wow. We're speaking with actor Burt Ward, better known to you as Batman's sidekick, Robin. Well, I want to put a plug in for the the acting that you guys did. There there is an actor that we have both interacted with. The great Eli Wallach was on this show some years back. He was a very fun interview, and and, and we're we're fans of his work. But my producer and I watched the episode wherein he plays the third of three different Mr. Freezes that you had on Batman. And I was surprised to note that while he is undeniably a great actor— and did great offbeat characters with humor, he really didn't get the right tongue-in-cheek levity for Batman. You, Adam West, Alan Napier, Stafford Rep, Neil Hamilton, you were making it look as easy as falling off a log, but uh, we should tell listeners, comedy is not so easy.
1: As a performer, believe it or not, it's much easier to make somebody sad than it is to make them laugh. Much harder, much harder to make someone laugh. And But the thing that Adam and I did, we had this, Chemistry, and, I, and all I can tell you, is a, a unique kind of chemistry that the, you could put the two of us together and neither of us say a word and put us in front of people and they start laughing. And, and it's like, my God, is my zipper undone? Why are people laughing? We just had this chemistry. And throughout history, all the great comedic duos, there was tremendous contrast between them. Laurel and Hardy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abbott and Costello. Um, you know, Johnny Carson, Ed McMahon, great contrast. And Adam was, like, very stoic and speaking very slowly. And I'm like, wow, let's go do this, you know? The more he went in one direction, the more I went in the other direction, compensating for him. We, instead of struggling to make the roles real, we took the roles, and we took them a lot farther than we were supposed to. Let me give you a quick example. And some of this borders on uh, on risque, okay? There was a scene in the third year where Batgirl was, had been introduced into the show. And for some reason, Batman and Robin decided that they would let Batgirl see the Batcave. They couldn't let her know exactly where it was because that would ruin their secret true identity. So we gave her a whiff of bat gas, and we brought her in the Batmobile into the Batcave and then gave her another whiff to wake her up. And then the, you know, she saw the Batcave, there was some dialogue, and now we're getting ready to leave. So she is now sitting in the center of the Batmobile between the two seats, uh, me being on the passenger side, Batman being on the driver's side. And we had just given her this knockout gas because we didn't want her to see where we came out. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So there's this very short little scene. I mean, it's just a couple of lines. My line is, gosh, Batman, you know, Batgirl is very pretty. And Batman's line is something like, well, I'm glad you noticed, Robin. It shows that you're growing up. Or something like that, right? Something just so plain. Plain, plain, plain. Well, my dear friend Adam, who for the most part got things on the first or second take, for the most part. He messed up the 12 or 13 takes. This wrong, that wrong. And I'm saying to myself, this doesn't sound right. I don't know. Is he not feeling well. And the director is starting to panic. You know what I mean? It's all time and money. Mm -hmm. believe me show business is just that it's show and business combined in any event now you have a director that's like panicking wanting to go on to the next shot and can't because this one little dinky scene wasn't done right so here we come to the 14th take and then i realized just before that 14th take wait a minute adam doesn't have a problem he's doing this for a reason he is purposely missing up and I figured out why because he would get the director to a point where if he got it right or close to right, they're gonna take it and go with it because they gotta move on. You understand? So now here comes the fourteenth take and you know, there we are with Batman in the driver's seat and Robin in the passenger, and there's that girl, Yvonne Craig, very beautiful, right between us. And I have my line, gosh, Batman, that girl was very pretty. And Batman says, I'm glad you noticed, Robin. It shows the oncoming thrust of manhood. Oh, my gosh. I just- my eyes teared up. I tried not to laugh. I didn't. I held it in, but the tears were coming down my mask. Thank goodness it couldn't be seen. And it said, cut print. That's it. Move on.
0: I just saw this a couple of days ago, by the way. It is a very funny moment.
1: It was about six
0: weeks later. It takes a while to edit and all
1: that kind of stuff week after the show aired,
0: get called into the production office.
1: Gee, why? I never get called into the production office. Oh, well, we have some television censors here. Oh, really? Nice to meet you. What do you guys do? Well, we watch out for programming that has incorrect language or incorrect action. I said, oh, okay. And and Adam's there, too. And anyway, basically, we got chewed out for doing this. And Adam says, you know, I struggled to get my lines. I guess I got it out the best way I could. But this was the beginning. Oh, it wasn't just that one time. Then when Adam and I saw what the result was and how people were contacting us to say, oh, man, that was, that was so cool. I couldn't believe you said that. And we, we, we hear it from people when you go out on a personal appearance, you know. They come up to you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And Adam was, oh, my gosh. He had a naturalness of funniness that you just you couldn't create. You have all these comics that get up and use swear words and and make people laugh because they're swearing and stuff. And they're not funny to me. But Adam West, he never had to swear. And he could make tears come out of your eyes. You'd laugh so hard. But as an example, we'd be signing autographs on a weekend. Mm-hmm. And some young ladies would come up. Of course, we're in costume, right? And in, in character. Mm-hmm. And Batman's say I have a terrible itch in, in my cowl. which you scratch my left ear? And they're like, like uh, all right. So they reach over and, and, and scratch his left ear. He says, oh, thank, thank you. That feels so much better. He said, you know, just having you touch me makes me feel strange stirrings in my utility belt. <laughs> oh, my God. And I'm like, oh, no, Adam. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't go there. And, and of course, you say that to people, and it's like people, they get numb they're numb and they a lot of people are laughing some are crying they're laughing so hard he just had a nature that he could take a regular sentence and turn that around to make it have some kind of a double meaning yeah or sexual implication he twisted those words and oh lord he and i got along so well and of course i would be laughing all the time the two of us laughed so much It gets very hot because in those days they didn't have the lights that they have now that are cool lights. Uh We had to use these giant arc lamps. You know, it's like these searchlights that light up the sky when there was a, used to use them all the time when they have car openings, you know, dealership openings and stuff. Anyway, we had all these hot lights. And by the end of the afternoon, late afternoon, towards the end of the day, being in these hot costumes with hot lights, you know, it's so funny because I'd look at Adam through my mask, and, he, and in his cowl, he looked cross-eyed. I mean, he looked perfectly cross-eyed in his cowl, the way the cowl was. He wasn't cross-eyed, mm-hmm. but that cowl actually, if you really look close, made him look cross-eyed. This was not the glamour that you might think it was.
0: You don't have to convince me. You guys are one of the great comedy teams. But, but you also, you had a good supporting cast behind you. There was a lot of solid backup. I feel a need to mention a couple of them. Napier played Alfred the butler. I was shocked to realize he studied at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. He worked with Sir John Gielgud. He performed on stage in George Bernard Shaw's plays. There was just a a, a great quote about him on on Wikipedia where they said that um, when he was hired for Batman, he said, my agent rang up and he said, I think you're going to play on Batman. I said, what's Batman? He said, don't you read the comics? I said, no, never. He said, I think you're going to be Batman's butler. I said, how do I know I want to be Batman's butler? It's the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard of. He said it may be worth over $100,000. So I said, I was Batman's butler. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, Neil Hamilton was a fabulous actor, very experienced actors. Neil Hamilton pl- played Commissioner Gordon.
0: Yeah, I, I guess Neil Hamilton worked with, like, D.W. Griffith back in the day.
1: Yeah. And Stafford Ref as Chief O'Hara just had a great cast. Madge Blake played Aunt Harriet. I mean, there's so many funny things that happen that nobody will ever know, you know what I mean, on the set. She was a very, very sweet lady. Oh, my God, the sweetest lady in the world. But she got so nervous during a take, okay, so nervous that she would grab onto something or someone. And if she got a hold of you, you couldn't get away. I mean, there's no way she had a death grip on you. There was a scene in, in Wayne Manor. We had this dialogue I'll never forget. And I was standing next to her, and I was, at a certain point I was supposed to cross over on the other side of the living room. And she grabbed my wrist and I couldn't get I couldn't get away to do it. They said, Cut, cut. Bert, what's the matter? You know you're supposed to I said, Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I must have been something I did you know, I didn't want to get her in trouble. Right. She was so sweet. But boy did I learn and she'd get close to you and my arms would go behind my back where she couldn't grab onto me. and and and, and these are things that you never see. They make the cutting room floors, what they do. But for the most part, because when you're shooting on film, it's not like shooting on television where you keep all the bloopers. When you shoot film, 35-millimeter film, it's very expensive to process and sell. And so they only print the final approved takes. You you see what I mean? Uh They don't print the outtakes because they're just too expensive, especially when you're losing $300,000 a week like Batman was back in the 60s, which is like losing $3 million a week now.
0: I'm wondering if that array of talent you had uh, uh, behind your regular staff and, of course, the villains, Burgess Meredith, Cesar Romero, all these guys were great actors, too. Did they take you under their wing a little bit as a young 20-year-old aspiring actor?
1: Well, I was like the kid in the candy store. Every week, here I'm meeting somebody that I'd either watched on television or I'd seen in a movie theater. They were always very nice, but they're so professional. I wasn't prepared for that. I mean, they never missed their lines. They always knew their lines. I-, I just never seen that level of professionalism. These people were just so good. I remember one time we had Vincent Price who played the head, and he came on the set, and I remember, as a very young child, I had seen a movie he had done called "The Leth," which just scared the dickens out of me. When we first walked on that set, I'm telling you, I had this flutter in my stomach for a moment, like fear for a minute. And then I met him, and he was incredibly nice. When we're young, we're very impressionable, very, very impressionable. And so as a result, for me, I'm like seeing in person all these people that I could only imagine that I
0: would never meet my whole lifetime. Well, I imagine that with all that array of talent, there must have been some occasional conflicts. Famous actors are famously prima donnas, and, and I just wonder if there was some strife from egos.
1: Well, I never saw that happen except in one case. So many stars wanted to be on our show, and there weren't enough roles for all the people that wanted to be on the show. So the producers very smartly set up a scene that could be done every week where Batman and Robin are climbing up a wall and a window opens. And there is like the first one, Sammy Davis Jr., who had Colonel Craig. Don Ho, Betty White, Lurch. I mean, we had all these popular people on the show. And one time we had a gentleman named Jerry Lewis. He was not rude or anything like that, but he just kind of like commanded, well, let me see, I want to see how the shot lines up. So he had to sit in the cameraman's seat to see and look at the angle and this and that and and literally take over his short cameo role. Sort of like self-directed himself, self-camera. I mean, and that was the only time I saw anything that was anything other than just perfectly normal professional. And But he's still very nice. It's just that, you know, I have to do this. And he did.
0: Our guest today is Burt Ward, better known to you as Robin. Also Dick Grayson. Also the Boy Wonder. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is Radio Parallax. I, I know that in one of those famous window scenes, I think you encounter the Green Hornet and Kato, who later come on the show. I watched the episode where you guys were all together, and I had to laugh at the credits saying, guest hero and guest assistant hero for Kato. But I guess Van Williams and Bruce Lee in the, in the, in the roles. You you actually knew Bruce Lee before the show, I understand.
1: Yes. Bruce Lee, of course, became the most famous cinema martial artist in the world, right? I mean, nobody's ever come close to what he's done. I'd already started the show, but I had met him. He lived in the same uh, condominium complex that I did, and we got to be friends. We actually sparred together, which was amazing because he he trained eight hours a day. It could be Christmas Day, and he trained eight hours. Incredibly quick. He was real, 100% real. But I remember he and his wife, Linda, and at the time, his son, Brandon, was like six months of age, and we went down to Chinatown in Los Angeles and had a great dinner. And because Bruce had lived in Hong Kong for 10 years, he knew all the most authentic stuff to order that wasn't even on the menu. And It was a great time. I mean, we had other times together, but I remember that because we had to with his family there. I had a great time on that, other than the costume, And then other than the explosions and the second-degree burns and getting a broken nose from a 2 by 4 land. I mean, all of the dangerous stuff that bring me to the emergency hospital quite often.
0: Well, let's talk about that. This martial arts training, which which helped you land the role, and, and you know, got you fighting with Bruce Lee. Uh, apparently, I gathered the studio and thought, well, we can save a few bucks by not using a stunt double for you in those fight scenes.
1: Uh, no, no, no. They didn't. They weren't about saving money. Let me tell you what the problem was. On the first day of filming, this is uh, in September of 1965 in Hollywood Hills, in a, in a place called Bronson Canyon, where they had the back Cave. I mean, they had, there's a cave there. And it's big enough to hold the Batmobile. And I had to be there at 6 in the morning, in makeup, in costume, at 7 a.m. And the first shot I had was I was told by the director, Bert, you're going to go into that cave. you got the Batmobile there. And you're going to get in the Batmobile. you have a scene here where you're going to drive out real fast and um, you're going to make this sharp turn and head off to Gotham City. I said, okay, so I, I go into the cave, and, you know, you go into a dark cave, and it, it takes you a few minutes to get your eyes to adjust to, this, to the darkness. And I kind of fumbled around. I got to the Batmobile, got in, and I sensed someone else was there. And I I said, Adam? He said, no, I'm Hubie. I said, oh, well, where's Adam? And he says, uh, well, Adam's over having some coffee. I said, oh, okay, well, why are you here? And they said, because this is a very dangerous shot. And the studio doesn't want to take a chance of Adam West getting hurt. So they hired me. And I'm a stuntman. And I said, Oh, really? Wow. And it's dangerous? Oh, yeah. Very. we got to come out at 55 miles an hour in the dirt, make a sharp left turn, skid the back end of the car around, and stay on our marks, and then going off to Gotham City. And I said, Oh. And I said, Don't work dangerous? Oh, yeah. He says, but it pays great. He says, the more broken bones I get, the more money I make. So, said, oh, okay. And I'm sitting there, I said, well, wait a minute. So if this shot is dangerous, do I have a stuntman? He said, oh, yeah, you got a man. I said, well, that's great, thank you. I said, well, wait a minute. Where is he? Oh, last time I saw him, he was uh, having coffee with Adam West. I said, well, wait a minute. And then I hear him say, all right, roll it up, get ready to shoe. And I said, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. There's a terrible mistake here. Second unit director, his name is Ruben. I'm running over to Mrs. Burke. What's the problem? I said, this man, he tells me the stuntman. I said, I don't know. I said, yeah, but he tells me this is a dangerous shot. Yeah, we know. And and, and he tells me that I have a I have a subman, but, but my man is over having coffee with Adam West. What's that get to do with the shot, Burke? He said, well, I i don't understand if i have a stuntman why isn't he doing the shot instead of me if it's so dangerous oh he said we can't use him i said oh well why can't you use him well he doesn't look like you <laughs> well wait wait a minute you hired somebody to be my stuntman that doesn't look like me why would you do that couldn't find anybody else oh so you got to do the stuff first because when you come out, at really fast, even though it's 55 miles an hour. When you make that sharp left turn and you get around, your face is going to be right in that camera, and we're going to know it's you because your man has a very large nose, kind of like Cyrano de Bergerac, and there's no way anybody's going to believe that's you. They're going to know it's you, Bert. I said, well, all right, all right. The man says, hold on. I said, oh, okay. So the first thing I do is go to put my seatbelt on, but there's no seatbelts. I said, there's no seatbelts? Yeah, no, they don't have seatbelts in here. I said, okay, well, let me see. How There's no door handle to hold on to. No, no. I, well, what am I going to hold on to? Oh, you can hold on to that plastic uh, uh, windshield. Now, this is not hard plastic. This is set up as a, as a set kind of thing. Yeah. This is flexible. This is like, you know what I mean? Yeah. This is very flexible, and it's only about an eighth of an inch thick. You know, that's hardly what to hold on to, right? And I held on to this thing, and, man, this guy came out. He gunned that thing. I mean, you just, it's hard to imagine, even though it doesn't sound like, but 55 miles an hour when you're flying over dirt, you know what I mean? It just feels like 150 miles an hour. But, unfortunately, something bad happened, okay? And if he got to the... He, and he was perfect. The stuntman executed perfectly. But when when, when the when the, when the the car slid around, so my side was facing the camera, maybe I hadn't closed the door properly, but my door flew open. they not supposed to. And it hit the cameraman who was sitting on a little camera truck, they call it. It's not a real truck. It's like a, just kind of a, a thing you sit on. And it knocked him over, knocked the camera over, the big BNC 35-millimeter $100,000 camera, it knocked an arc lamp over, one of those giant arc lamps if that had landed on somebody, it would have killed him for sure. And as I'm thrown towards the opening, um, just, I don't know, you know, it's one of those reactions where you throw your arm behind you, and my left ha- arm went behind me, and my little finger amazingly locked onto the airship knob, and it kept me from falling out, but it pulled my finger out of joint, which was incredibly painful. So here, everything is knocked over, there's dust flying, the crew is running over, and Bert, are you okay? I said, I- I'm okay, but my hand is killing me. And through the glove, you could see my finger was like already twice normal size. They said, oh, your finger's out of joint, we got to get you to a hospital. I said, okay, and I kind of picked, very gently put my left hand uh, over my right hand, supported with my right hand, so I didn't have to touch my finger, I was such agony. I said, well, okay, show me to where the car is to take me to the hospital. And they said, oh, we can't take you to the hospital now. I said, why not? Because we didn't get the shot. (laughs) Oh, oh. And they said, this costs us $35,000 every 10 minutes. You've got to be here. You're in the shot. You're the star of the shot. So here it is, 730 in the morning, right? I got a finger out of joint. I ended up doing the shot three more times and left at noon for the hospital. All the time with my same finger out of joint.
0: Good lord! I had to laugh when you talked about not having a seatbelt because I read that the National Safety Council complained when you started the show that the dynamic duo really ought to set a good example. And although at first you didn't put seatbelts on, they inserted that afterwards so that you. That's you did.
1: right. We shot a special scene just with that. And then there was another complaint because with the when you do the emergency back turn, those parachutes owe you down, and then they're jettisoned. There was a complaint. Oh, you're littering the streets. You're littering the streets with those parachutes. So we had to shoot a special sequence where Alfred drives up in a parachute pickup truck, to pick up the parachutes.
0: <laughs> a friend of mine suggested if I was going to talk to you, I had to ask something about Julie Newmar, the original Catwoman, quite the femme fatale.
1: Julie Newmar is a very big lady. She was like six foot or six foot three and they put four inch heels made her six foot seven adam was six foot three with four inch heels he was six foot seven alan napier our butler was six foot nine and i'm five seven and a half and they took the heels off my shoes to make me look even smaller so when i would go out on these personal appearance and meet people they'd say gosh you're so much bigger than we thought
0: <laughs> well you took an express elevator right at the top of the entertainment industry. But we can happily report you were not one of Hollywood's casualties. You did find entertainment work, and in 1994, you founded a charitable organization with your wife, Gentle Giants Rescue and Adoptions. Tell, tell us about that.
1: It's so funny. My wife and I, when, when we had our daughter, uh, this is back in uh, 1991, but by the time she was three years old, we were living right, right at the beach, not on the beach, but right a block from the beach. We had a beautiful home overlooking the ocean. And the property in Southern California, especially at the beaches, is so extremely expensive and rare. We had five feet (laughs) of of grass around our house and 15 feet in front. I mean, you just let a 4,000-square-foot house on a 2,400-square-foot lot. So we are up four levels. And with all these balconies, and you've got a little three-year-old running around on, on these balconies, no way. We were, like, frightened to death, so we said, let's move inland. So we found the city that we're in now. It's a city was called North Corona. It's a short Norco, N-O-R-C-O A place where it's animal-friendly and everybody has horses here. And, and it's just an amazing city. Anyway, we, we moved here and decided to get our daughter a dog. You know, it's so, a you know, great person to grow up with a dog. Most people get their children a pet. I liked Great Danes. My wife was was raised with Irish wolfhounds, so we went on a quest. We didn't hear about any Irish wolfhounds because they're incredibly rare, believe it or not. But we heard about a Great Dane that needed rescue, So we rescued this dog rather, you know, rather than it go to an animal shelter because, unfortunately, animal shelters are overcrowded. And in many shelters, if you drop a dog off at the shelter, they kill it before you leave the parking lot. I mean, it's, it's a bad situation. People don't want to do it, but they have no room. So we rescued this great thing, and then we heard about another one being rescuing, and then we heard about a bunch of others, but they were still in people's homes. So we figured, well, you know, there's no immediate danger. And it was like two months later, we found out that the people that had them in their homes eventually had to give them up. Somebody took them. They went to a shelter. They were all put to death. And my wife and I, like, got so upset about this. And this is the first week in August of 1994. I said to my wife, Tracy, I said, we can't let these dogs die. How about just for a couple of weeks? Just so we can find somebody else to take this over. Let's just rescue these great things. They're these big, beautiful, gentle giants.
0: We're speaking with actor Burt Ward, better known to you as Robin.
1: What we had found out was that every breed of dog has a rescue. There is a chihuahua rescue, there, and many of them. There are many German Shepherd Rescue, and there was a Great Dane Rescue, but the person that had been operating it was an older lady that herself had died, and so now there was nobody saving Great Dane. Here I am in the first week of August 1994, my wife Tracy agreed to it. By the end of the month, three weeks later, I had 102 Great Dane's in my house. Oh, my God. Full size. Oh Great God. day! A hundred and two and sixty-two puppies under seven weeks of age. Oh. We never we never bred a dog, but the shelters would call us if they picked up a litter because the shelters have a hard time with potential disease in the shelters, and if there's any newborns, they want to get them out of there quick. So they, you know, and and we're dealing with shelters, not just here locally all over California and ultimately all over the United States. And even beyond that, we ended up rescuing five great babies in the St. Bernard from Taiwan. We had other breeds from Europe. I mean, we just got to be like the largest giant breed dog rescue in the world yeah. over a couple of years. 15,500 dogs rescued. But here's the key thing. These giant breeds particularly have short lifespans. They don't live very long. Great Danes average lifespan seven to nine years. Irish Wolfhound and Mastiffs six to eight years. That's all they live. And we adopted almost every single dog. And the ones that we didn't adopt, we kept here, you know, loving in our home as a member of our family. But when we would lose a dog, it was so devastating to us. And I remember saying to my wife Tracy, I said, "This is such an injustice. These beautiful, gentle giants, living Great Danes seven to nine years." we got to do something. We, if there's a way, we got to try to help them live longer. And we developed a feeding and care program because we're feeding 600 pounds of food a day. 600. You take a big bag of dogs, and we're feeding 20 bags a day. We developed this way of feeding and caring for dogs. that works amazing. It adds about three to five years to a- average dog That's unbelievable. Three to five years.
0: Do you have a website for this, by the way, Bert?
1: Yes, the one they should go to now, the most current website is GeneralGiantDogFood.com because after the feeding program, we said, is there anything else we could do? And we said, well, I guess if we change their food and feed the finest food money can buy, the best of the best, we can afford it. I mean, and we're not selling this. You know, we're just making it for our own dogs, right? We can certainly afford to do that. And we did. We created this amazing food now called Gentle Giant. And we went to make this food. We thought to ourselves, well, you know, if we make the best food money can buy, maybe we could pull out another year, Uh, you know, maybe a year and a half to add to each dog's life. But we found out something so upsetting, it changed our lives forever. Let me tell you what we found out. And this came from our nutritionists, that every pet food company knows something the average person doesn't know. Which is, the more fat content you put in the food, the hungrier it makes dogs. Now, if you say, well, why do you want dogs to be hungrier? Well, if you're in the business of selling food, you want them to be hungrier. So they'll eat more food and you can sell more food. And we didn't put that extra fat in the food. You go look at any dog food, just about any one I've ever seen, and you look on the back of the bag, there's a chart next to the ingredients that says Guaranteed Analysis, and the second item is fat, crude fat, not healthy fats like avocados. We're talking saturated fat. And the average dog food has anywhere from 12 to 22% pure crude fat in it. Well, that's crazy. If a human ate that, I, I can't imagine lasting five or six years. We didn't do that. And, and I tell people all the time, if you want to understand what the difference is of what you're feeding your dogs and what we're feeding our dogs feel your dog's food in your fingers. You know, Rub those kibbles together over your fingers. Put the kibbles down. Rub your fingers together and see if you don't feel that slightly greasy feeling. Everybody does. And they say, well, but what's, what's so bad about this? I said, well, let me ask you. Would you ever take a can of bacon fat or chicken or turkey fat and pour it down your garbage disposal at home? Oh, of course not. It would clog it up. I said, that's right. And unlike water that evaporates, animal fat coagulates. And when it hardens, it's like cement. I said, so when you realize that animal fat will ruin a metal garbage disposal, what do you think is happening to the arteries and intestines of that dog or dogs that you love when every single day, every single meal, every single kibble, every bite is encapsulated in animal fat? So there's one thing that God did in designing animals. That fat, that grease, will work itself out of a dog's body. It will do it by itself, but it takes about a month. And the difference between our food, Gentle Giants, which is sold now all across the country, never planned to do it, but it is now. People want their dogs to live two and three times as long. In the case of our food, we don't put that fat back in, and it takes about a month for it to come out of the dog's body, whereas the other food, it goes right back in. And, and and the other thing is excessive protein. You, you know, and all of these things I've learned because we make the food. And, and what happened was that we didn't have a choice. If we wanted to adopt our dogs, we had to sell the food. And you say, well, why would you have to do that? Well, because the people that would come to adopt the dogs from us and see an 18-year-old Great Dane that had lived twice their normal lifespan, that's running around like a puppy, and they say, how can this be? And they say, well, what are you feeding them? Well, here's our food. That's, and, and, I, and, I, and I say, but you don't have to use our food. You can just go get your own food. They say, no, no, I'm not adopting this dog if you don't give me that food. And I said, well, actually, it's right now it's in plain white bag, We've got to get comply with labeling laws. We never planned on selling this. But, of course, that was like 15 years ago. And now General Giants is sold all over the United States. But the point was, here you are wanting to do something good, right, for animals. And we discovered this. And my wife and I take no salary, zero salary from it. This is not about money to add fat and to do all these things to try to make more money. Our, Our whole goal is not that. Our goal is how long can we help these animals live and the quality of their life. We have our giant breed living up to 27 and a half years, running around like puppies in their mid-20s. Wow.
0: My producer's girlfriend is a veterinarian. We're going to have to make sure she uh, hears this part of the program.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and let me tell you, some people can't believe it because they've never seen it like that before. But we haven't. And right now, just to give you an idea, now, sh- sure, if the dog gets hit by a car and the dog gets cancer, I mean, that changes it. That can definitely shorten their lives. But... On average, just about every single dog we have here has already doubled its normal lifespan. In our rescue right now, we don't have any dogs for adoption because the youngest dog we have here is 14 years old, and the oldest dog is 25 years old. And these are giant breeds that's like massive that live six to eight years, 14, 15, 16 years old. They've already doubled their lifespan, and and people are blown away by it. And, and we, we show people, and we, we do this without any salary. This is not about money for us. This is about life and the preciousness of life. In fact, we just put out these commercials, and we say that there's nothing more precious than life. And for people that love their dogs, think about it. You could have your dog an extra five or ten years longer. And the honestly, the only complaint my wife and I ever get, and we get one complaint, you know what that is? They say, you know, first... You and your wife, you're just so nuts about dogs and cats and all you care about is animals. Why don't you ever do anything for people? And I said, well, no, wait a minute. If I help you keep your dog or cat an extra five or ten years longer, you don't think I've done something for you? Oh, well, I never thought of it that way.
0: This is Radio Parallax, and our guest today is Burt Ward, one of the legendary caped crusaders from the TV show Batman. Batman. I also want to put a plug in for an uncredited voice actor in the Batman series. Those voiceovers were done by your executive producer, William Dozier. I know you've done some voice acting yourself, and you must appreciate how perfectly he set the tone.
1: He was a wonderful man, a brilliant man. He was highly respected. He's been a vice president uh, at CBS, and he created the Hallmark Hall of Fame films, an amazing guy, and uh, he was a a tough guy, but he was always fair, and always nice to me, and uh, I got along with him, so uh, I have nothing but the best to say. We actually had a wonderful crew. We had some of the best people. The studio, they got the best technicians. I mean, the only thing was, I was like 20 years old on a cold soundstage, 10 to 12 hours a day, where the youngest person on that soundstage besides me was Adam West, who was 30. I think he's 17 years older than me. He was 37 when I was 20, and uh, and all the rest of the crew were, you know, much older. So for me, as a young kid, I spent some of my, uh, the older part of my childhood in a soundstage. It wasn't until I got out in native appearances that I really saw how people reacted to Batman. When you're sitting there filming a show where you. You work for 30 seconds and you wait for 45 minutes while they light the next scene and work for another 30 seconds. And you do that all day long. You know, it's like, you know, you, you wonder if you're on a different planet until you got out of the what I call the real world with real people and you see the reaction, how they just went crazy for
0: Batman. I think people today I just don't realize what a smash the show was in the 1960s. I mean, people compare it to Star Wars, but I think it was a much, a much bigger uh, fanfare than that.
1: Well, let me give you some actual numbers. The, Batman merchandise is the number one selling licensed merchandise in the entire world. More Batman merchandise sold than Star Wars, more than Lord of the Rings, more than Harry Potter, more than Superman. There has nothing has ever come to the number of products sold like Batman. And, I mean, of course, they even now have, the and have had for a number of years, the 1966 comic book. Book version. And most recently, um, the, uh, DC came out with Robin, 80 Years of the Boy Wonder, beautiful coffee table book. And I wrote the introduction, quick-page introduction to it. And and I've always gotten along with Warner Brothers, uh, have a very special friendship and re- relationship. And on there, they have a streaming service, of course. And I did the introduction of all the superhero programming that was on their, uh, in their streaming service where I introduced each show and talked about it and stuff. So I've had a great relationship with him, And, of course, we did these two Batman movies, Warner Brothers did, before Adam died, where we did those were animated with our voices. And the last one was uh, Batman versus Two-Face. And Two-Face was portrayed by none other than the great William Shatner. And here you have, can you imagine a movie where you have the stars from the two most iconic television shows in history, Batman and Star Trek, Everybody working together. It was a lot of fun, and, and Shatner Shatner's an amazing actor and uh, fantastic to work with.
0: A couple other questions I, I just feel the need to ask because I'm just so curious. I, I remember many years ago, uh, back in the '70s, I think walking around Mexico City at night, looking up. There's a TV screen in a bar, and there are the Gotham City crime fighters dubbed in Spanish, having at it. Um, with such a wide distribution on the world, people like me would, would wonder: does does that translate into much income for residuals? Let me
1: tell you something. Unfortunately, we Adam and I didn't very make very much money from residuals because at the time Screen Actors Guild only had residual payments to the tenth rerun. Our residuals ran out by 1971, and the kind of residuals that we were getting because I I got scale I got at union scale because you know I hadn't done a whole bunch of stuff. Adam made a, you know a good amount of money. Mm-hmm. Nothing compared to what's made today. I mean, it literally sure. make hundreds of thousands of an episode or even a million. I think Adam got $3,500 a week the first year, and I got $350 a week for the first year.
0: Uh, for the first year? Uh-huh. My God.
1: Yeah, then, but the second year I had a big jump up to $450, and then I made The Killing in the third year of $600 a week. And if you saw what it takes to wear that costume, go through all that stuff, 12 hours a day in the heat of those lamps. Oh, my God, believe me, I earned every penny of it. <laughs> I'm
0: sure, and I'm sure you did. You did. But, but the the product you've left us behind, I can't say enough good things about it. There was one final question about, about the fact that Batman has been on the big screen many times besides your 1966 film. To my great annoyance, I see that there are this comic book aficionados out there. I think that the TV show... Trivialized the character of Batman. To which my answer to that is like, really? Get a life, guys. <laughs> and, 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 and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but when I, when I hear a supposedly serious movie about the Joker, all I can hear in the back of my mind is is the cackle of Caesar Romero. Right. And and I just think a dramatic movie, really. <laughs>
1: It is probably unlikely that you would have all those superhero movies if Batman hadn't come on first. Again, we talked about it earlier, show business. It's shows and business. And the tremendous success of Batman is what created the marketplace for Batman movies and made by DC and Warner Brothers and Marvel movies and and stuff like that. And uh, it, it, it might not have ever happened if it hadn't been for Batman because of our success. In fact, just to give another little point that you might find interesting is that when we started, there were only two television networks. There was CBS and NBC. ABC was a syndicated network. It wasn't a full broadcast network. And it was the success of Batman and Bewitched that made ABC the third network in the <laughs> United States, broadcast network. And those two shows and the spin-offs. And, and just to give you one more idea, all the programming, when you see these movies on television or or in theaters and, and almost every one of these superhero movies, or even movies like uh, Bad Boys and stuff like that, action films, that there's a style that was that we created on Batman that that is in every one of these pictures. And let me tell you what it is. It was where right in the moment of something really dangerous, like in Bad Boys, you know, uh, one of them will turn to the other and say, We ever get out of this alive, I'm not coming over to your house. Stuff, you know, there's some yes. comedy. During Batman there was a great scene where we're in a we're in a warehouse and we're looking for the Joker, but all of a sudden there's eight Joker's henchmen that like drop down into the room. Okay? And I had this line to Batman and said, Gosh, Batman, there's eight of them against two of us. Odds in our favor. <laughs> But you see, it's that kind of humor, and that has been passed on, and that's in every, every major film you will see where they break up the action with some kind of a funny line, and that was created by Adam and I. Uh,
0: do you have a special episode? Is there one episode that sticks out in your mind or a scene that really just, just is stuck with you all these years? Uh, no. My first
1: concept in going onto the set in front of every shot was one word, Survival. I'll tell you, a really serious one happened. We had a scene where Batman is supposed to use a uh, an explosive to blow a, a lock that we're in some kind of a villain's jail. The special effects guys said, Well, you don't have to worry about this. We have the charge aimed straight down, and they use a particular type of charge that it, it's a flashbang. It's really loud and extremely hot, very, very hot. But it doesn't really blow up like, you know, when you blow up a building. You know, it's just it's a flashbang, a really powerful thing. Anyway, they told me, and I'm standing where I would be away, I guess probably five feet away from it, right? And you would think that that's safe. And they said, look, you don't have to worry, Bert, because, I mean, I got from these explosions and going to the emergency hospital from second and three degree burns. Let me tell you, I got to where I was really cautious when there was any kind of an explosion. And these special effects guys say to me, "There's nothing to worry about. We've got it aimed straight down. When it explodes, you have nothing to worry about. And I guess all of us in life, sometimes we have a, a sense of something just tells you it's not right. There's something yeah. wrong, you know what I mean? And I knew exactly when they were going to set off the explosion. I knew the exact word when it was coming. I don't want to mess up the shot. And, and yet I'm worried about my eyesight and I'm worried about getting burned, and I'm five feet away. And still, you say, well, five feet, you should be okay. Oh, no, this, this stuff is really hot that they use. And I remember right on that word before, because I didn't want anybody to see me with my eyes closed, That would ruin the shot, right? Okay. So right at the time, literally a tenth of a second before the explosion went off, I closed my eyes, the explosion went off, and it blew in all directions. I had second-degree burns on my eyelid.
0: Oh, my God.
1: If I hadn't closed my eyes, I would be blind today. <sighs> and these are the kinds of things that you don't know, always hear about. You know, only see the glamour coming out, signing autographs. Everything. And, but for me, you know, and it was, there was a lot of wonderful stuff on Batman. But it was dangerous. Dangerous stuff. I had another scene. You know, the, the bat poles where you slide down the bat poles? So here I am to slide down the bat poles, and uh, but they said we got we got to do this for the movie, and we're going to use it on the on the and the in the television series. Where one time, we're going to have you climb up to the top of the soundstage, and slide down two poles that we've got 65 feet high.
0: That's a lot of pole. Yep, a
1: lot of <laughs> poles. And if you've ever been on a sound stage you're in a soundstage, they have these old wooden rickety steps. You know, the kind that as you step through, you can see right through and you just keep seeing yourself getting higher (laughs) and higher and higher, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know how Adam and I ever did this. To me, it was stupid. We got to the top of this thing, and sure enough, it had two poles, you know, Batman's pole and Robin's pole. There was no net. We had to jump, open jump, from where we were standing. Onto a pole and slide down. They had warned us about turning our feet, so not our legs, and 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 only the inside of our sole, where your arches would be onto yeah. that. And then as you slide down, even with the gloves, as you slide, you don't hold on tight like sliding down. You 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 tighten and let go, and tighten and let go because it burns right through your gloves, no friction. And if I had missed that pole, either one of us would be dead. That's it, dead. I look back, and it's those kind of things that say, I can't believe I did that. And then they had another scene. Oh, listen to this one, where Batman is coming to rescue me. These villains, they're choking me, and I'm over the top of the building. And they went to the top of the same soundstage. Now, now when you get to the top, by the time you get over there, and the wall stuff over there on top of it, it's like 70 feet tall. And they said, Bert, right after lunch, we're going to shoot this scene. And we just want to prepare you for it. We've got two guys, and they're really strong, and they're going to hold you over the hill. They're not going to drop you. Obviously, you'd be dead. So they're not going to drop you. And they, you know what I mean? They know to be incredibly careful. Our most trusted stuntman. And I said, no way. No way. Well, Bert, we got to do the scene. I said, okay. All right. And and you have to understand that I talked this with them and they said, told me, I said, I want you to get it, one of those big, thick ropes like when, you, when a ship pulls in you tie the, to tie to more of a, a big boat, at least an inch and a half to two inches thick. And I said, you find something up there to tie this around and you're going to tie it onto my leg. They said, these guys are not going to let you go. This is going to be done right after lunch. And you know what we are eating for lunch that day? <laughs> Fried chicken. Guess what? People hold fried chicken in their hands, and their fingers get greasy and slippery, right? Yes. You know, and look what's going through my head knowing that in another half hour, my life is going to be at great risk from two guys holding on to me, and hopefully they've washed their hands and maybe put some powder on them so that they could hold on. Oh, no. I had, And, and you know, they didn't drop me. But uh, you did I have that tied under my leg? You bet. Can you imagine being upside down and you're 70 feet above the ground? And you've got this costume on that you can't turn or move very well. You're just in a cocoon.
0: Well, Bert, you survived it. You survived all of that. As we wrap up, I mentioned a moment ago yours is not the tragic Hollywood story of this unknown who shoots the top and crashes and burns. You're You're doing great work here with this project for animals. I have to ask, how did you stay focused and avoid those pitfalls that just claimed so many other actors and actresses?
1: I have secrets of success, all right? I have some things, okay? Now, let's take happiness. Wouldn't you say happiness is one of the most important things in life? You'd hope. You know that there's three essentials to happiness, and let me give them for your listeners. Number one, someone to love. Number two, something to do. And number three... Something to look forward to. Those are the three essentials to happiness. You have those three, you will have happiness.
0: Sounds like great advice to me.
1: And the other thing I tell everybody is, just remember, the first hundred years are the hardest. (laughs) After that is pretty smooth sailing.
0: We've been speaking with Bert Ward, the one time Robin the Boy Wonder from For Our Money, the only screen portrayal of Batman worth its salt. We suggest, dear listeners, you explore the considerable number of videos and articles available on the internet about the show. And for our many animal lovers, we hope you look into Bert's charity, Gentle Giants and Adoptions. I was a fan on day one, and I still am. And, and, and Bert, it's been as much fun talking to you as I thought it might be.
1: <laughs> you know, as we said on Batman, as we close, thank you, citizens.
0: To the Thank you, sir. This was a blast. I loved your questions, and I had a great time. Thank you so much. Take care. It's a lot of fun doing a radio show sometimes. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you soon.